Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Before we dive into this last message in our series, I want to tell you about the message that's coming up the next two weekends. We're going to do a little mini-series, and we're going to be talking about how to overcome anxiety and fear. And um, that is such a big issue these days with young and middle and uh, older folks as well. So if you know somebody that struggles with that, I um, encourage you to bring them along. And I think we get a lot of good help from God's Word as we talk about a very relevant issue, uh, but from the Word of God. Uh, right now, though, I'm going to make uh, three observations. Um, and I want you to listen carefully. I think there are three kinds of people here today. I include myself in that. I think there are some of us here today who are converted, and we know it. And when I say converted, I mean we have uh, converted to Christ. We've converted to Christianity. When I say Christianity, I don't mean cultural Christianity. I mean the Christianity described by the Bible. Secondly, there are some of us who are not converted for some reason or another. Uh, we've not yet made that step across the line, so to speak, and surrender our lives to Christ and and, uh, and the faith that is described for us in the Bible. And then there is a third group of us, and that group are those of us who think that we're converted, but really we're not. We think we are, but we're not. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to be transformed in your life? In order to do that, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul and his testimony of his conversion. But before we do that, let me just kind of summarize what we've talked about this past month. We've been in this series about how to know and do God's will. And we said that, like Abraham, it takes a step of faith and obedience to know and do God's will. We said, like Moses, you've got to be willing to surrender your reluctance and not stay where you are, but go with God. And like Joshua, we said, it, it takes courage. It takes courage to follow God's will, especially when it seems to go the opposite of the way everybody else is going. But none of that can happen in our lives if we don't start with the foundation of a converted life, a changed life. So let's look at uh, Paul's changed life. It's found in Acts chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 1, if you want to follow along in your scriptures. And because we have such a high regard for God's word in a time and a, a culture where um, there's so much disregard for the word of God, I, I'd like us to stand. I, I try to do this now uh, on a regular basis with you. Uh, just in honor and respect, uh, this is the word of the Lord. So Acts chapter 9, if you want to <clears throat> excuse me, follow along, I'm going to begin at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to synagogues in Damascus, asking for the cooperation and the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, wouldn't you? <laughs> 
For they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. You may be seated. I encourage you to keep on reading, not now, but later on in Acts 9, to see what happens to Paul after that. Now, to understand Paul's conversion, you have to actually look at some other passages of Scripture where he gives more about his story. For instance, in Acts chapter 22, he gives us some more pieces. And then in Acts chapter 26, he adds even more. And I want to read to you just a little part of what uh, he said in Acts chapter 26 that was recorded by, the, uh, by Luke. Here's what he said. Verse 9, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Wow. Paul was a bad dude. He was a spiritual terrorist. He's like this one-man army who was out to just get rid of Christians and get rid of their leader, Jesus, because in Paul's mind, they were like a virus that was infecting Judaism, infecting everything that he believed and taught and hung on to in the law. And he just felt like he had to get, he had to get rid of them. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is a fascinating story about Paul's conversion, and I'm really interested in that, but I'm not really sure that it relates to me really well, because, I mean, I've, I've never, I mean, I'm bad, but I've never been that bad. I haven't been out to, like, kill Christians and get rid of Jesus. I, even before I was converted, I had a lot of respect for Jesus. I had a lot of respect for, for true Christianity, and that's probably true, and I'm, I'm glad for that. But I hate to tell you this. The, the truth is that we're all as bad as Paul in terms of our hearts. In other words, all of us have the capability of doing what the bad things that Paul did and even worse than that, and that's what condemns us. That's what keeps us from being in a right relationship with God. In fact, Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.21. He said, this includes you who were once far away from God. He says, you were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. And you know, if all of us would be honest and transparent, we would say, yeah, we've had evil thoughts and we've done some evil things. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul just comes right out. He says, all of us are, are at enmity with God. In other words, we're all, we, we all have a kind of a hostility in us, in our nature towards God. It's almost like we come out of the womb with a fist raised toward heaven. <laughs> you know, in God's face. You say, well, what does that mean? What I mean by that is we're all born selfish. Have you noticed that? I mean, if you have kids, one of these kids beautiful up here this morning, just cute little kids. I hate to tell you, behind those cute little smiles, there's some selfish individuals up there. (laughs) Just like their parents, just like their grandparents, and just like you and me. We are, we are all born with that kind of wired in us. And that, you know, that, that's kind of against God. It's a hubris. It's a pride. It's, a, it's kind of a self-confidence. I don't need God. And conversion is realizing how wrong that is. Conversion is realizing, man, I need God so badly. So what's unique about, about Paul's conversion is that it's kind of a pattern to help us understand what it means to be converted. 
So whether you are or aren't, the, the reality is you need to know what it means to be converted, even if you are. Because I think a lot of us maybe have forgotten what it means and what we received when we did take that step of faith and put our trust in Christ. In fact, Paul said about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he says, I am the worst of them all. Now, after you read about his life before he was saved, you might sit there and go, yeah, he's pretty bad. But there's a sense in which all of us could say the same thing. Because we all have that same nature in us. We are all the worst of sinners. He goes on, he says, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me, here's what he says, a, as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. And you, and you pick this up a lot in Paul's writings. They could just be writing along. It's like he bursts out in this, in this praise, this worship to God. And that's because Paul can never get over the fact of what he used to be and what God did for him. And he's just always filled with thanksgiving for that. And, and that's really a good question for you and me. Do we feel the same way? If you are a convert, if you've given your heart to Christ, are you just frequently in awe and wonder that he chose you, that he, that he showed you the way, the truth, and the life? Does that just kind of capture you sometimes? I hope it does. I hope it doesn't get old. I hope it doesn't get blasé. I hope it doesn't just become religious for you. So the question is, okay, then what's the pattern of conversion that, that we should see in our lives and we should see in the lives of others who either have, you know, say they've been converted or are asking us about what does it mean to be converted? So let me give you a couple of principles. Here's the first one. First principle, everybody needs to be converted. Everybody needs to be converted. Say it with me. Everyone needs to be converted, including you and me. So where do you get that from? Well, look at Paul's life. Paul is like one of the most religious men you would ever meet. Yeah, he did some bad things, but in his mind, he justified doing those bad things because he thought he was doing the right thing, though it was the wrong thing. But he was like really, he was like this really religious guy. In fact, what you could say is that, is that Paul was a man of great faith. He was a man of great faith in, in what he believed in. There's kind of this idea out there in our culture today. Maybe you've run across it. Maybe you haven't heard it blatantly said, but you certainly have felt its, its impression. And, and, and this idea is that um, all that matters is that you just believe in something or someone. You guys ever come across that? Yeah. Just, just believe in it. It doesn't matter what you really believe in. Just believe in something. Believe in someone. You've got to have some, you gotta have some faith. Let me tell you a parable. Imagine there are two ice skaters, and they're in Minnesota, and they're going to go skating on a, on a frozen lake. I just heard the other day that we're like six weeks away from the first snow. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> so, some of you are happy about it. I don't understand that, but anyway. Um, but uh, I, these two ladies show up to this frozen lake, and and they finish lacing up their skates and get ready to go out. And the one lady looks over at the other lady and just says, and you can tell that 
that she's nervous, apprehensive. She goes, is something, is something wrong? Are you okay? And the other lady says, ah, I'm a little nervous about skating on this frozen lake because I've not done it before, and I'm afraid, you know, what if I, you know, what if I, what if I fall through and I drown? And the other, the other lady just laughs at her. She goes, oh, don't worry about it. She goes, I've skated on this lake every year for years in the wintertime. Nothing to worry about. In fact, you know what? See that ice over there? That's only like a half inch thick. But if, if you just keep your skates moving, it, it's okay. It's perfectly safe. Nothing to fear. The other lady says, well, you're not going to catch me skating on thin ice. I'm, I'm going over here where, where it's at, at least four inches thick. But I got to tell you, I don't know if that's thick enough. What if I fall through and drown? And the other lady just laughs at her. and She just takes off skating, zigging and zagging and twirling and very accomplished skater. She has great calm. She has great faith. The other, the other lady, she just kind of inches out little by little, not really skating, just kind of walking on ice and, and kind of tapping ahead to see, you know, is this going to hold me up or not? She just, she's just petrified. So let me ask you a question. Later on, after the ladies who've gone out skating, one of them actually does fall through the ice, drowns, and dies. Who died? Who died? The answer is the one who had the greatest faith died. Why? Because though her faith was great, her faith was resting on an insufficient foundation. You can have great faith on thin ice. That's not going to save you. What's going to save you is whether the ice is thick enough or not. Everybody here, all of us, have faith in someone or something in our lives. And when it comes to eternal matters, the big question is, do I have faith in the right person, in the right thing, to know that when I transition from this life to the next life, that, that, all, that everything's going to be good? So conversion, everybody needs to be converted. The question, is, the question is, what are you depending on? Who are you depending on for your conversion? That's a really big and really important question for all of us to answer. Secondly, this is really profound. Conversion isn't for dummies. Conversion isn't for dummies. See what you mean by that? Well, there's this idea out there, and those of you who have kids in, in secular schools and off to university, you're going to hear about this. There's this idea out there that Christians are kind of, Christians are dummies. <laughs> Christians just believe in myths. They believe in fairy tales. They're, they're told something by their parents, or they go to a church, and some guy gets up and tells them something from the Bible, and they just believe it. That is so not true. That is just so not true. Yeah, I know there are a few people out there who believe anything that they're told, but I, there are atheists out there who believe anything that they're told. The reality is, is, is that the Bible actually calls us to wrestle with truth and to make decisions based on the evidence. Did you know that? That's what the Bible calls us to do. To, to wrestle with, did God become man? Did Christ rise from the dead? Not just to swallow and take and say, you know, my grandmother told me this, it must be true. Or I grew up in the church, and they told me this, it must be true. Do you know why so many young people walk away from the faith? 
is because nobody ever challenged them while they were growing up to really think about what they believe and why they believe it. So then they go off to the university or college or whatever, and they hear people with all kinds of you know, letters to the alphabet behind their names telling them, this is the truth. What you heard was a myth, and they can't deal with it. They don't know how to deal with it. We're supposed to be thinkers. God has called us to be thinkers, to think about what we're doing. Paul makes Paul makes a decision in part based on the evidence. You say, well, what was the evidence? Well, the evidence was this, this, <laughs> this spotlight that came down over him, brighter than the sun, that knocked him off his donkey, put him flat on his face. He heard the voice of Jesus. He got up, he was blind, and even the people who were with him noticed something dramatic really happened. And I know exactly what some of us are thinking right now, because this is what I would be thinking. Wow, if that happened to me, I'd convert too. <laughs> you know, I was like driving along, and all of a sudden there's a beam of light around me, and it blinds me, and I hear the voice of Jesus, and everybody else said, something really happened to you. Yeah, I'd convert too, but not necessarily so. As you know, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of Tim Keller. I read him a lot. He influences a lot of what I think and preach and teach. He makes me think a lot. He makes a statement. He says, you know, human beings are not necessarily purely rational creatures. And he's absolutely right. How many of you have ever been irrational this week? (laughs) We We don't always think rationally. You can have all the evidence in front of you and still be irrational and just say, well, I don't like the evidence. Like a young adult who said to me a few years ago, they grew up in a church they heard about God, heard about Jesus. I mean, it was all there their entire life. And I appreciated their honesty. They looked at me and they said, I don't want to hear any more about God. I don't want to hear any more about Jesus. And I don't want to hear any more about the Bible. I've decided I'm an agnostic. I don't know if God really exists. I don't know if the Bible's really true. And then they were honest with me and they said, right now, I just want me, M-E, I want me time. I don't want... I don't want anybody else to tell me what's right or wrong, what's moral or immoral. I'm, I want to live life on my own terms. I want to be left alone. That is, that's a scary place to get. When you say to God, leave me alone. Now listen carefully. You can, God can leave you alone and you can actually live a somewhat peaceful and good life. Let's not assume that people that don't know Jesus have this miserable life, are just, you know, under horrible conviction and are constantly wrestling. There are a lot of people who don't have Jesus in their life. There are a lot of happy atheists out there, is what I'm trying to say. Let's not just assume that people that don't know Jesus don't have peace in their life, at least temporary peace. Because, you see, the problem, if I could put it this way, the problem with Jesus is, When Jesus shows up, he always disturbs your life. Have you noticed that? Someone has said that before Jesus will deliver you, he will disturb you. (laughs) He will trouble you. He'll make you think. He'll make you wrestle with yourself. He'll make you wrestle with the big questions of life. If I say, no, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you to bother me. Leave me alone. To me, that's... To me, that, that's a scary thing when, when God gives us our wish and says, okay, I'll leave you alone. That is a frightening place to be. 
And God doesn't want us to be there. So he does, he does disturb our souls. He gives, us, he gives us all kind of evidence to make us think and make us wrestle. But we can deny the evidence we choose. Judas had all kinds of evidence. What did Judas do? He denied it. He betrayed Jesus. The apostles had all kinds of evidence. Jesus said to them over and over and over again, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, 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 I'm going to rise again, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to rise again. And the moment he's crucified, what did they do? They all ran for the hills. It ain't true. It's not going to happen. He, he left us. Oh, my goodness, we put all our faith in this wrong person, in the wrong thing. I'm going back home, going fishing. Had all the evidence, but didn't think it through. Didn't think it through. How about you? How about you? Have you thought it through? Does the evidence make sense? Has Jesus disturbed you enough to get to the place you've made that decision? Let me actually let me put it this way. Even as a Christian, is he disturbing you right now? Disturbing you because maybe you're, you're kind of wandering from the faith a little bit, which is easy to do in our world and our culture today. I'll talk to you more about that in just a moment. Let's look at the third uh, pattern in conversion. Conversion makes you realize how blind you really are, or I suppose you could say past tense, how blind you really were. I got a couple of things I wrote out for you. I want you to see them, just not hear me. To gain spiritual insight, you must come to grips with your own spiritual blindness. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's struck down, and when he opens his eyes after his encounter with Jesus, suddenly he can't see a thing. And it, it's kind of weird. It's like, it's like finally he can really see, and, and, and finally he's really blind. It's like now, now he knows he's blind before he didn't realize how blind he was. It's like it's, it's, like it's opposite, right? Before he could see physically, but he was spiritually blind. Now he, can see, now he can see spiritually, but he's physically blind, which leads then to this statement, I jotted down the next statement, which goes like this. One of the signs of truly being converted is we gain spiritual insight that we never had before, while at the same time realizing what fools we were when we thought we could really see. One of the evidences of being really converted is you sit there and you go, I can't believe what a fool I used to be. I can't believe the way I used to think. I can't believe the things I used to do, the things I used to say. How could I have acted and been that way? What a dummy! Sorry, that word offended you. That's, you know, it's like, what a fool! How could I have been that way? That is one of the clearest signs of conversion. Because something has shifted, something has radically changed. It's like, now I see, now I understand. And as a Christian, what happens is, you have that initial experience, and really, as you are walking in faith to the Lord, your vision gets clearer and clearer and clearer. I mentioned in the last service, one of the things that concerns me is what I'll call spiritual glaucoma <laughs> that I see happening in the lives of Christians where things are getting clearer and clearer. Now things are getting kind of cloudy and harder to see. Do you know why? Because, because we're paying attention to what the world is saying and thinking, and it's starting to cloud our vision. We're beginning to wrestle and begin to, to disbelieve the evidence because we feel, we feel the peer pressure. We, we want to we conform to the culture, and it clouds our vision. In a day and age when people's vision is so clouded right now about, about identity and sexuality and so many more things, listen, your vision and my vision should be, ever, should be even crisper and clearer. 
than it's ever been before. So I guess the question I would ask you is, how is your vision these days? How's your vision these days? One of my favorite stories is in John chapter 9 when Jesus meets this man who was born blind and he heals him. And he can suddenly see and the, and the religious leaders find out about it and they're ticked. They're so angry. You got to read the story. And they, they literally arrest the guy and interrogate him and say, and say to him, you weren't, you weren't really blind. You're just making this all up to popularize Jesus. And he says, listen, I was born blind and now I can see. So they find his parents and interrogate them. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And they're like, yep, that's our son. He was born blind. And then they get so mad at the guy, the guy starts to argue with them. They kick him out of the synagogue. Well, Jesus finds out about this. And let me pick up the story in verse 35. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you, are, are you saying we are blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. You know, back in the early 1800s, people didn't understand, doctors, nurses didn't understand the whole issue of germs. And so there, there was a period of time, uh, particularly in hospitals, where, where babies were being born, if they were at home, if they were born into a, into a hospital ward of some sort, that, that babies were, were getting these fevers. They called it um, uh, baby crib fever. And the only explanation doctors had for these fevers is they said it was the result of, and they had a term for it, that it was the result of bad air. The air was bad, and it was making these babies sick. Well, there was a, a doctor. Uh, he was a Hungarian. He was practicing in Vienna, Austria. His name was Ignaz um, uh, Semmelweis. And uh, he, he, just, he just had a hard time accepting it was bad air. And so... He began, he began kind of doing some research, and he noticed in the hospitals that were staffed mo- mainly by doctors and nurses that there was, there was more baby fever than in the hospitals that were staffed by midwives. There was less baby fever. So he did figure out, well, what is the difference? And he noticed that the midwives were always what? Always washing their hands. But in the hospitals where you had the doctors and the nurses, they, they didn't wash their hands very often. In fact, it was not unusual for them, you know, for a doctor to do an autopsy and then go deliver a baby. And germs just spread. So on his ward, he made everybody wash their hands. And guess what happened? On his ward, there was less and less and less and less infections. Now, you would think that the doctors and the nurses would have grabbed him and hugged him and said, what, this is so amazing, you're going to change medicine. I'm so glad you realized that, you know, it's, it's whatever is on our hands. But instead, they became indignant and angry with him. How dare you say to us that we're blind to what's really going on here. It's the bad air. Has nothing to do with washing our hands or not washing our hands. Isn't that sad? 
The people that should have known better were as ignorant as could be. That's the Pharisees. Jesus is telling them, you know, this is what's going on and, 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 and this is what you need to do. But they, they believe that the law, just trying to keep the law, that's what's going to convert them. That's what's going to change them. If you really have come to faith in Christ, you, you, have, new, you have new insight. You, you can see what sin does and you can see what grace has done. Let's move on. Next principle Oh, wait, I, I messed up, sorry. You, you can take that one off, okay? I got a little carried away on that one, all right? Um, no, it should be conversion. It's always the result of a process, right? Go back. Conversion is, oh, there it is, beautiful. Conversion is always the result of a process, okay? See, what do you mean by that? I mean, it doesn't look like a process in, Saul, in, in, in Paul's life. It's like he's on this road to Damascus and boom, man, he's laid low. Yeah, but you got to understand something was going on in his life before that happened. If you go back to Acts chapter 6, while Paul in his pre-conversion days was after Christians, he runs into this guy named Stephen who's filled with the Holy Spirit who preaches this amazing message in Acts chapter 6 when he was arrested by the religious leaders, one of them being Paul. In Acts chapter 6, it says that as Stephen got up to speak, that the religious leaders were speechless because it says his face glowed like an angel. And they all listened to him as he started with Abraham and wove the Old and New Testament together and how it pointed to Christ and how Christ came to save all mankind. And that made them so angry that they took him out to stone him and, and Saul was there and cast his vote. Yeah, stone him. And, and Saul then named Paul Hear Stephen say to the Lord as he's being stoned, Lord, forgive them for what they're doing. And then he dies. That would have stayed in Paul's head. That would have stayed in Paul's heart. Man, he would have been wrestling with that. What was that all about? Who is this Jesus? Have I been wrong all this time? Is is Stephen right? Am, Am I persecuting the church? Am I persecuting Christ? That would have just been boiling in his life. And then what happens? And then God ambushes him, and finally it all makes sense. And he has his life changed. Acts chapter 26, verse 14, it says, And when he had fallen to the ground, Paul says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Say, what's a goad? I'll show you a picture. This is what came up. A goat is, is, a, is a, like a, a piece of wood uh, that the shepherd used with an iron poke, uh, pick at the end of it. And when the sheep would get off the beaten path, they'd kind of poke the sheep. Ow! Get the sheep back on the right path. What Jesus is saying is, you know, you know, Saul, I keep poking you. Like Stephen's sermon poked you. Are you going to respond or not? Are you going to let your life change or not? Conversion always comes after God has poked us. He may poke us in a sermon. He may poke us in a life event. He may poke us through a friend. He may poke us in a dream. I don't know, but you did not choose God. God chose you, and he used all kinds of circumstances to bring you to that place where you put your faith in him. Last but not least, last principle, Christian conversion is the act of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it amounts to. I like how Tim Keller describes the gospel. 
He says, the gospel is an assessment of yourself that is far better and far worse than you ever dared believe. Let's start with the far worse first. It's far worse because the gospel is devastating. The gospel says, none of us are good enough. That we are all the worst of sinners. We just talked about that. The gospel says, your case is absolutely hopeless. You're damned to hell. That's what the gospel says. You can't be good enough for God. But then it comes right away with the best news you could ever imagine. And it says, but God loved you so much, he gave his son to die for you and take your death for you so that you could be forgiven and accepted in his grace. C.H. Spurgeon, who was a great preacher in England a long time ago, got up in front of his congregation one day and he said, I, I want to share with you a news story from, from that time, from that day. It was in the papers. And it was about a couple who lived in a remote, a remote part of northern Britain. And they were bad, okay? Like, we're all bad. They really acted out their badness. They just were a, a, a depraved husband and wife. And they conceived and had a child, a boy. And the relatives were so concerned about this boy being brought up by this terrible man and woman that they literally, listen, they literally bought the child. That's how bad these parents were. They bought the child from the parents and then had the child adopted out so it could, it could be raised in a decent family. Well, years went by and the, and the father descended further into just evil and sinfulness. He became a robber. And he would, he would hide out on, on uh, remotely traveled roads, you know, where hardly anybody went down the road. And, and he, would, he would wait for people that were traveling by themselves. He'd, he'd jump them and mug them and take their money and, and go his way. Well, one day, he was on the side of the road, kind of waiting in the bushes, and he saw this guy coming, uh, this young man coming who looked very well-dressed. It was, it was obvious by the way he was dressed he was, that he was wealthy and rich. And so when the guy was just at the right spot, he, he mugged the guy, and he hated rich people. He, he just hated them. And so he began to beat this guy and beat this guy, and he, and he kind of lost control and beat the guy to death. And the guy died. Later on, the, you know, everything was found out, and he was arrested. And what he ended up finding out was that the man that he killed was actually that little boy, his son, who had been adopted out. You see, he was on his way to find his father. He had grown up, he'd done well, he had made you know, a good living, and he was going to give his father some, some money, and then he was going to beg his father to change his ways and to reform. The father thought he was just breaking the law. He didn't realize that he was killing his own son. That is a powerful parable of the gospel because the gospel is God sent his son to you and me to tell us how much the father loves us and we crucified him with our sins. But the father has a way of taking what we do and turning it around for our own good. He, he takes what we do to his son and he allows that to be the sacrifice that satisfies the judgment we deserve. And he turns around and he forgives us. And the gospel is believing that and the gospel is receiving that and the gospel is then repenting from the way we used to be. Would you bow your heads with me, please? As we close today, I'll just ask you again, 
Do you know you're converted? Have you not made that decision yet? Why not today? If you're at that place where you've never made a decision for Christ, you haven't stepped across that line, why don't you do it today? Why don't you do it today? Just pray this simple prayer with me, but you gotta mean it from your heart. Just simply say to the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, I've seen enough evidence in my life. This is far more evidence for you than there is for anything else. I feel you tugging on my heart. Lord, I want to cross the line today. I want to give my life to you today. God, I'm surrendering myself to you. Change me from the inside out. 